morning, Watermark. My name is John Elmore. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at church, and I'm so thankful to be with you today. And as you can see, spoiler alert, we're gonna have some fun today. You guys in for it? It's gonna be good. Hopefully, uh, there's gonna be water involved. I don't short out the entire grid up here, so you can pray for that. This past week, uh, we've got an eight, six, and four-year-old in our family. Our four-year-old's name is Judd, and we were separated from him. Laura and I were on the ground. He was three stories up with a total stranger, and we found ourselves in the situation where we're separate, he's with a stranger, and he's terrified, and I'm telling him to jump. So, we were at Pine Cove Family Camp. I was teaching there this past week. He goes up the high ropes element thing. I mean, he's four years old. He's got on the uh, harness, I mean, as tight as we can get it, and he's like backed into that telephone pole. He's never done this before. He's never been on a zip line. Uh, doesn't have a category for what it is because he's never done it. And yet there I am down below shouting up to him to listen to the counselor. And at Pineco, they've all got nicknames. So I'm like, Judd, do whatever Darth Mater says to you. And he's like, what? I don't even know this person. And I'm, so in this exercise of faith for him, it's also an exercise of faith for me because I'm like, I don't know if that college student was paying attention while they were doing the rope certification. And she's like, Un untouching the zip line from the harness that goes to the structure, and I'm watching all this unfold, and all of a sudden, Darth Mater, or whatever her name was, was like, on zip, down to the other college student at the other end, and he's like, zip on! I'm like, oh, here we go. Like, this is nuts. I'm like, Judd, jump! And little Judd backs off that pedestal. I mean, little, you know when your body won't even do what your mind's saying? I mean, it's like, and then just, poof. And just joy on his face. And I'm so proud of him. Truly, not as much because he did a zip line, but by the leap of faith that he took off that platform. And I was proud of me that I took a leap of faith letting my four-year-old go up there. I'm like, everybody wins. What a day of faith. And he gets done. He's so excited. Wrap him up in a hug. And it was like, that was living with that huge grin on his face. And I share that with you. Because coming out of 1 Corinthians, as we've walked through that letter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it's been so good to evaluate this life of faith and to correctively walk with Jesus in the body of Christ. And then I'm excited about the new series that we're gonna have in the fall. But here today, what I wanted to share with you and why I'm talking about faith is because three months ago, I was reading a very familiar passage in five words jumped off the page by the Holy Spirit and just like hit me in a new way that I have not been able to shake. And so when this Sunday came up, I knew I'm going to be teaching John chapter two, verse one through 11, because the five words that struck me are these, do whatever he tells you. It's found in this passage. Now we know from John, John tells us why he wrote his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, now there were many signs he performed before his disciples that are not written in his book, but these were written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was foretold throughout all the prophecies. He's the fulfillment of that. And that by believing in him, you might have life. That in believing in the Son of God, 
you might have life, that he is the one true savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through the Son. So John tells us this is why, that you might believe. John uses the word belief 48 times in his gospel. Belief. I was talking about faith earlier, 48 times. Now you may not have a category like, well is that a lot or is that a few? Well the other gospel writers use the word belief seven, eight, and 12 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, 48 times, this emphasis of belief and faith in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection that you might be saved. And so what I'm talking about today is a life of faith and not a life of logic. Because I fear that you might be like me, that we were saved through grace, by faith, and then after having been saved, we live a life of logic. Like, well, you saved me, and now I know what to do. I'll do it by my own gumption, my own know-how, my own wisdom, whatever I can figure out, I can self-actualize. And it's like, no, we were saved by faith, and we live by faith. Through Habakkuk, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, it says the righteous will live by faith. In Romans 8, it says those who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. It says in Hebrews 11:6 6, that it is impossible to please God without faith. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we do not walk by sight, but that we walk by faith. And so today is always gonna be about living a life of faith, not a life of logic. And where we're going to be in John 2 is the turning of water into wine. Water to wine. And this life of faith, here's where we're gonna be, three parts. You're gonna see prayers of faith, obedience of faith, sharing of faith. So prayers, obedience, and sharing of faith that will lead to belief and glory unto Jesus. It will all be unto the glory of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's jump in. John chapter two, verse one through four. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana was a tiny little town in the region of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Notice how it says the mother of Jesus. This is all focused on Jesus, not even using the names of other individuals, because it's all like, I want you to behold Jesus and have faith and belief in him. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. That's important too, that the disciples were there, as we'll see at the very end of the passage. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The first point of living a life of faith is to have prayers of faith. When Mary is confronted with a problem, she's just attending a wedding, it's not, even, it's not hers, she's just there. She realizes they've run out of wine and rather than like, going around to the other women like, hey, let's take up a collection, see what we can get. Then we'll run down to our local specs and pick up a few cases of wine. Instead, she's like, well, I'm gonna go to my son because I know exactly who he is. Now, I don't know how he's gonna solve it, but I know that he has the answer. He's gonna be able to figure this out. He's no mere carpenter. I know what that angel told me when I was pregnant with child that the Holy Spirit would come upon me and that I would bear the one who would deliver his people from their sins. Like, that's not just a carpenter's boy. So when I'm faced with a problem, I go to him. Now why is it called prayers of faith? 
Because you have Mary talking face to face with the incarnate son of God, God in flesh. So as she's saying, they have no wine, they've run out of wine, that's a prayer. She's talking to God in flesh. She's presenting the problem. She's not ascribing to God, and this is how you're gonna fix it. I think we do that so often. We're like, hey God, I'm lonely, and so this is what I need, and this is how you're gonna deliver it, and when I need it by, and this is what he's gonna look like, and how tall he's gonna be, and all of that. Instead, she just goes with the problem. They've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. They have no wine. Now, in verse four, he says something really interesting. Two interesting things, actually. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is the only time I will ever tell you not to follow Jesus' example. Do not call your mom woman. When you go home for Thanksgiving, don't say, you know what, I'm just, I've been reading in John 2. Hey, woman, what time's the turkey ready? Don't do that. Call her mom until the day she's at home with the Lord. You just keep on calling her mom. But here, Jesus, I think really intentionally, says, woman, what does this have to do with me? I think because he's like, hey, mom, our relationship's about to change. My public ministry is beginning, and now you're gonna be a follower of me. I will now be the authority over you. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says something else strange. He says, my hour hasn't come yet. And I think she must have been a little confused too, like, wait, no, I said wine, not time. Why did you say your hour hasn't come? I'm not talking about time, Jesus. I'm talking about wine. They ran out of wine, not time. Why did you say my hour hasn't come yet? But as you continue on through the Gospel of John, there is this refrain of hour. The word hour is repeated, and it has something very significant, the utmost significance in Jesus' life. Listen to it. In John chapter 7, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then finally, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says to Mary, the hour is coming. You're asking me they've run out of wine? I'm telling you, my hour hasn't come yet because when the hour, when my hour comes, I will give wine. I will give wine in abundance, the joy and blessing, but the wine that I will give is my blood poured out and shed for the forgiveness of sins. With no other founder of no other religion has ever done but to lay down his life and then be raised again, proving that he was no mere man, not just a good teacher or prophet, but God in flesh. And we know this from Luke 22, verse 20. It says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He's now holding a cup of wine, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
She says they've run out of wine, and he says, hey, what does that have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. Because he's saying he's there. He is the bridegroom watching a wedding unfold, probably thinking about his own wedding of the bridegroom of the church and how he's gonna lay down his life, and he will provide wine. The wine that he provides will be his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so he says, my hour hasn't come yet. But we know from the rest of the story that that he's gonna turn water into wine. We know there's more to the story, so even though he gives a no to Mary and says, there is a time coming when I will, he's also going to do it. And so a principle you can take from this is just because as you offer prayers in faith, as Mary did, they've run out of wine, they have no wine. As you offer prayers in faith, just because you haven't seen God move yet does not mean that he won't ever. Just because you haven't seen God move yet as you go to him with your prayers of faith does not mean that it's the end of the story. As shown here in John chapter two that there is more that is going to happen. Because we'll pick up again here in verse five. His mother said to the servants who were standing by, do whatever he tells you. Those are the five words. Those five words in verse five just like hit me jumped off the page like I've never seen him before, even though the passage is so familiar. Do whatever he tells you. Oh, that I would live my life like that. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This one, it's literally of biblical proportion. It's, it's 26 gallons. So this is about what they would have had, six of these. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So the second point, you've got prayers of faith, now you have the obedience of faith. They've, they've laid the request before the Lord, and now Jesus is gonna ask people to act in faith. Now this is super strange, because he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Which is implicitly nothing. This has nothing to do with me. I, I am the Messiah, I'm, I'm not like the sommelier or the wine bibber. I'm not the master of the feast. I'm not the waiter. That's not what I'm here for. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And yet, it's as if she's like, just kind of listens to him. And then she turns to the servants like, uh-huh, do whatever he tells you. And I'm sure it's like, mom. But then he says, fill the jars. Fill them up to the brim. And it's really strange, because on one hand, he had just said no, then when she says, do whatever he tells you, he acts on it. So what's going on there? I think what's going on there is she offered prayers of faith, and now he's asking people for obedience of faith, and this is really akin to the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman found in Matthew 17 or Mark 7. See if it's a familiar passage to you. There's a woman, she's a pagan, and her child is demon-possessed, and so, as Jesus and the disciples are walking through, she's crying after them, like crying so much that Jesus would deliver her child from the demon. So much so that the disciples are like, Rabbi, like Lord, she's crying after us, send her away. And so he turns to her and he says, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. And it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And it's like, oh, I'm sure the people are cringing like, Jesus, you just, you just called her a dog. 
And she could have been like, why'd you call me that? How dare you call me that? Instead, seeming to understand, like I understand, you're the Jewish Messiah, you've come for the Israelites, and then the church will be born, it'll be for all people. And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he's like, great is your faith, woman. May it be done as you have requested. And that hour, the demon left her child. It's the same way when he says no to his mother, and she turns to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. And he does. He's like, I think he saw her faith, the obedience of faith, and was like, okay, okay. I see that faith. That faith is what I'm after. And so you've got Mary now telling the servants, do whatever he tells you. And if, if I'm the servant, I'm like, hold up. I have a boss and you are not her. Our boss, as we'll know later from the story, is the master of feasts. I don't know who you are, woman from Nazareth, but I don't answer to you. And furthermore, I don't answer to your carpenter's son who came here with all his boys. Like, I don't report to you. This isn't my job. Who are you to tell me what to do? And especially to delegate that non-existent authority to your son for him to tell me what to do. What's going on here? But let me break it down for you, those five words, those five words that struck me, that moved those servants to record the very first miracle that ever happened. The five words, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. If we could only live by those five words, there's no telling the miracles that would unfold in our lives. So let's break it down, do. Do is don't think about it, don't wait until you're ready, don't pray for months on end. When you know the Lord has commanded you to do something, you do it. I have heard it said that obedience, biblically speaking, is rich. It is our radical. Do you know how radical it is when you're lacking wine to fill up a jar with water? It makes no sense at all. It's radical. It was immediate. It says he said it and they did it. They filled it up to the brim. Radical, immediate. It's also costly. These servants could have been fired on the spot. Like, what are you doing listening to this guy and this woman? Like, get back to work. We're out of wine. You need to do something productive instead of fetching water. It's costly. And the last thing it is, obedience is holy. Obedience, biblically, as walking in faith under the Lord, it is a holy act of worship. Obedience is rich. Do. Whatever. Whatever is Whatever. Like, and it may not make much human sense what a holy God is asking you to do. But that's precisely what he's after. He's not after a life of logic. He's after a life of faith. And so the whatever that he asks you to do is what we do in faith. It's whatever. But then also, it is he. He is Jesus. We have a lot of competing voices and noise in our lives, from news to social media and outside influences in the culture, in this fallen moral landslide of a world that we're living in, like all the noise, all the voices, and there is one singular voice. Do whatever he, Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the anointed one, who has sent his spirit who dwells in you, what he, he is your authority, he is your curios, your Lord and what he says goes, what he tells. You see, we're not deists. The Lord speaks. He speaks by his spirit, he speaks through his people, he speaks through his word, he speaks through circumstances, but the Lord speaks. We are not, you know, we aren't just following 
deism with a mute God, but we have a living, speaking God, a living hope. And so what he tells, what he tells, it says in Job 33, 14, for God speaks again and again, or another translation, one way and another, though people do not recognize it because of the noise he's speaking. Do whatever he tells you. In this case, Mary was saying this to the servants. In the New Testament, it says all throughout that we are also servants, that he is Lord, we're his servants, we're his ambassadors, his anointed ones, his sent ones, sent out to share the good news and hope of Jesus, the gospel, the good news. The Greek word is diakonos. It's a servant of a king, one who fulfills the commands of another. And so here you have these servants fulfilling the commands of another, filling up these water jars, and they had no reason to. They just met this guy. Delegated authority by a mom they had just met. They had no reason, and yet they follow him in faith. So then you gotta think about the servants and their mindset. They're like, okay, all right, one, you have no authority over us. That doesn't make sense. Like, we don't answer to you. We have a master of the feast. Like, who are you? And furthermore, we aren't out of water. You've told us to fill these water jars? Like, for ritual cleansing with water? We're out of wine, not water. You're not hearing right. This doesn't make any logical sense. And then thirdly, and maybe most audacious of it all, these were for ritual cleansing. They were purification jars. You could never drink from these. That would be sacrilege. This is from Mark chapter seven. So, This is funny, the Pharisees and the elders, the scribes, they rebuke the disciples. They're like, hey rabbi, how come your disciples, they don't wash their hands before meals? And this wasn't like, you know, because you're afraid of getting the common cold or something. This was ritual cleansing because they thought the entire world was unclean. As they go out about it, the only way that they could get clean again was to get some of that ritual cleansing water to clean not only their hands, but the cups, and the vessels, and the copper kettles, and even the dining couches that they sat on. That's what these were for. And Jesus, in Mark 7, says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied for you, about you. Because you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's elsewhere we would say, hey, you cleanse the outside of the cup, and the inside, you are full of filth. He's like, it's dead religion. Those those jars are dead religion, but I'm about to give them a miraculous conversion as we walk in faith. It would have been sacrilege to fill these up and use them, and yet they do. They weren't concerned about a life of logic. They were doing a life of faith, but We can fall into that same trap where we don't do the life of faith. Instead, we're like, you saved me by grace through faith, and now I'm living this life of logic. But the Bible is full of examples of people who lived a life of logic, and it went really, really south, really, really quick. And so you have Abraham, who was promised to be the father of many nations, children as numerous as the stars in the sky, a blessing to every nation. And yet he and Sarah try and try and try and they wait and they wait and they wait and nothing. And so in that moment of weakness, rather than living a life of faith, they start to live a life of logic. And Sarah's like, you know what? Take my hand, servant, Hagar. Maybe the child of promise will come through Hagar. 
life of logic. And you have Ishmael, and then the child of faith, Isaac, and they're at enmity together for generations upon generations because they stepped out of faith and started living by logic. Or what about when God said, hey, you're wandering in the wilderness, I'm gonna give you something to eat. When you wake up tomorrow, the ground's in me covered with bread, but only have enough for one day because I'm gonna give you daily bread. You're gonna walk by faith. Don't get more than enough just for today because if you do, it'll rot. And the people are like, oh, man, I've never seen this before. It's just rain bread. Like, here's enough for today and I'm gonna stock some up for tomorrow because I don't know, when's the last time it rained bread? And the next day it was full of maggots and had a stench about it as it rotted because they started living by logic. Or the 10 spies who went into the land and they're like, hey, they're giants, by the way. We're like grasshoppers then. Like, we are gonna get decimated. We go in there, we're getting wiped out. And they planted these seeds of doubt throughout the Israelites who were supposed to walk in by faith and the Lord would displace all those other ancient Near East countries. And instead, they were like, they tried to just like logic their way out of it. And so they never entered into the promised land. Or Achan's treasure. Jericho falls and Achan, they're not supposed to take any of the spoil. And instead he's like, I'll get a robe and a little bit of gold because we just came out of Egypt. Like what would, be, what would be the harm in that? Like we don't have anything. We're kind of destitute. Like we're going into the promised land. Stuff's all gonna get thrown away anyway. So he takes it. But they were the items devoted to destruction. And so Achan and all his family was destroyed because he started operating by logic instead of by faith. You think about Saul when they were like, hey, we wanna be like all the other nations. We're kind of the laughing stock. They're like, who's your king? Who do you follow? And we're like, God. And they're like, right. Like, we wanna be able to walk in, see a person on a throne, ask a request, he do something about it, lead us into battle. And they're like, no, you're supposed to be a theocracy. You're supposed to follow God. And they're like, no, we want a king. And they're like, all right, fine. You wanna live by logic? Here, you get Saul, a prideful man who would lead them into sin. Or another example of life by logic, let's go New Testament, where Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He's like, hey, blessed are you, Simon Peter Barjona, for it is not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you, but the Lord. And then moments later, Jesus says, hey, and the son of man, by the way, the one that you just acknowledged me of, he's gotta be betrayed, crucified, and handed over to be killed. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, may it never be. He switched over into logic instead of faith, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. You see, it was their trapping and it is our trapping that we will be saved by faith and then creep into this life of logic rather than being saved by faith and then live by faith. We've got to live by faith. And so I wanna show a little bit of what this looked like. And the reason why I do this, I mean, you guys know, I'm a visual learner. And so this stuff just helps me because I think that as we read John 2, and we're, 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 it's the foe, of, the familiar, foe of familiarity where you're so close to it, you're like, you can imagine the little felt board with Jesus making water to wine. We, we read it like folklore, almost like it's a myth. It's just, it's words on a page. And so I hope that this will place us into the story. And, and honestly, 
the ridiculousness of what they were doing in faith, their obedience in faith, that they were putting into a ritual purification jar water when they said they were out of wine. So just think about this. They're out of wine, and these servants are fetching water. And not only that, they're putting it in a vessel that has a completely different purpose. And there's not just one of these, there's six of them. So you think about the time this would take. And they're now being pulled off task. Like, Lord, I'm supposed to be doing something else and you got me here doing this. But they weren't operating by logic, they were operating by faith. But like a life of logic and all the examples in the scriptures, there's so many examples where God asks people to do things that are completely counterintuitive. It's a life of faith, not by sight, but by faith. And so you think about the Passover, when the Israelites are trapped in Egypt, two million people, it's like, God, how are you gonna get them out? Like, what are you, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do, God, to get us out? We're gonna, we're gonna revolt? We're gonna overthrow these people? We're gonna sneak out? What, what's the plan? And he's like, here's the plan. Here it is, you ready? Have a seat. We're gonna have a big feast. Wait, that's how we're gonna escape? We're gonna have a feast? Yeah, it's gonna be a feast. Everybody's gonna have it. We're gonna have a big dinner. And, uh, oh, and when you slaughter the lamb, put some of the blood on your door. What? Put the Egyptians' blood on the door? Like, kill the Egyptians and put their blood? No, the lamb. And eat the meal. And then you're gonna go free. And they did. And it was not logical. It was faithful. And so they stepped in that regard. Or you think about Jericho. As they're going into the promised land, the oldest inhabited city in the world, walled city. It's like, what's the plan, God? We're gonna go up against it? We're gonna set fire on it? We're gonna do bows and arrows, spears? Like, what do you want want us to do? He's like, I got it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the city one time a day for six days. Just blow a horn. And then on the seventh day, do it seven times. And after you blow the horn, then, you ready for this? Shout. And I'm sure like, we are gonna get waylaid. Are you kidding? Shout, that's the plan? Have you heard of bone arrows? We're all gonna get, we're gonna get struck down, but they shout and the walls fall flat. The walls fall flat in Jericho. I want you to think about Jonah. <laughs> God sends Jonah to the Ninevites. The, the Ninevites were the Assyrians. They were the superpower of the world at that point in time into the capital city where the king is. They were the, I mean, you know Jonah's like, hey God, you know they're the people that stack their heads of their enemies in pyramids as a thing of horror. They take their enemies and they impale them on stakes as a warning sign to anyone who would come and threaten them. And you want me to go and tell them to repent? Just me. So no wonder he fled and got spit out by a fish. But he walks into that city, and you know what he's armed with? He's armed with five words also. This one, it wasn't do whatever he tells you. These were, in Hebrew, five words that were, yet 40 days and Nineveh will fall, and the whole nation repents. Sackcloth, ashes, fast, didn't even let the animals eat or drink, and the whole nation 
repents. Talk about faith over logic. And then let's go New Testament. You got the fishermen, the disciples, and they haven't caught anything all night. And there's a dude on the shore and he's like, how's your catch? They're like, this is a terrible, terrible night. He's like, cool. Hey, throw your net on the other side. They're like, <laughs> yeah. Stay in your lane, carpenter. Like, we're fishermen. That's not how we do this. Like, it's a drag net that we put below the boat, the fish swim into it, and we pull them up. So it doesn't matter if the net's on this side or on that side. They're not gonna be in the net if they're not on this side. But in faith, they pull up the net, drop it on the other side, completely illogical, and they catch so many fish that they have to call in the other boat because the fish are swamping that boat. Biggest catch. Or here's the last one that I'll share, is that Jesus is, goes up to the temple, and he doesn't wanna make a stumbling block, and so he's like, hey, we need to, we need to pay the tax, and you know, they're all checking their, their money, they don't have anything in their Venmo account, they're like, oh man, we're fresh out, what do you got? They're like, well, you had us quit our job and leave the tax booth, so we don't have anything, actually. And he says to Peter, it's no problem, go throw your line in the water with a hook, and the first fish that you catch, I want you to look in its mouth. And I'm sure Peter's like, what? I said tax. We need the temple tax. And yet Peter catches a fish, pulls it out, and what's in there is a shekel, which just so happened to be the exact right amount for the temple tax, for drachma, for Jesus and Peter to get in. Just the right amount. You're like, did you really get just the right amount? No, I didn't. I'm going back. <laughs> I hoped it would have been. There's one guy who does miracles. It ain't me. It says they filled it to the brim. Filled it up to the brim in faith. And I'm sure they're like, okay, great. Now what? Now what? We've got, now we have 180 gallons of water. Awesome, rabbi. Great. Thank you, that was a colossal waste of time. There's prayers of faith, obedience of faith, but then there is sharing of faith. Verse eight, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. You see the immediacy of that? But do you know how ridiculous it is? They've just filled this with water, and now he's like, all right, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now they're really like, oh, I'm for sure getting fired. Like, I haven't been doing my job for a while, and now I'm gonna take him some water out of this sacrilegious jar and tell my boss to drink it, or my boss's boss's boss. Like, I'm so never gonna work again in Cana as a bartender. <laughs> when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. This guy's a professional party thrower. He knows how it works. But you have kept the good wine until now. That's the sharing of faith. The insanity of it. That the wine had run out, they fill it up with water, and then they walk it over and it's like, here, master of the feast, try this. And what that man tasted was better than any other wine he had ever tasted before. Look, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've tasted a lot of alcohol in my life. 
And whatever Jesus made blew this guy's category. The master of the feast was like, okay, nobody does what you just did. I thought that was the good stuff. And you know, you know the bridegroom was like, that was the good stuff, and that's all of it. It's gone. We're in trouble. And he's like, well, whatever that is, is the best. And so it is with you and your offering of faith, your sharing of faith with others, that they will taste Jesus and be like, man, I've been, I've been drinking the world my whole life. I've been drinking men and women and money and status and all I got is anxiety and trouble and depression. And when they taste Jesus, we'll be like, that's like nothing else. Everybody else serves the good stuff. I've been drinking the good stuff, but you saved the best for last. Whatever you just brought me, that's from Jesus. And it's the best, the sharing of faith. Now also, God's plans, you gotta note this, God's plans often only make, in, make sense in hindsight. Like everything they were doing, it wasn't until the moment the master of the feast tasted it that it all made sense. And they were like, oh, that's why we were doing that. Because that's a life of faith. If you knew what was gonna happen, if you knew how, why God was having you do what he was having you do, it wouldn't require faith. We had our director of pastoral care, Aaron Harder, and his wife Kelly. They just finished the Watermark Institute. He was in an incredible role at an incredible church. And yet he comes to me, he's like, man, I, I think we're being called to Colorado. I think we're supposed to go to Colorado. And I'm like, really, tell me about it. He's like, well, we don't have a place to live. Um, they haven't actually, they aren't able to pay me. I don't have a salary. And my wife, Kelly, doesn't have a job yet. But we're supposed to go. And he turns in his notice and takes this like huge step of obedience and faith. And you wanna know why they did that? because of the darkness that exists in Colorado. They wanted to not only pray with faith and obey with faith, they wanted to share Jesus in faith there in Colorado. And so they go. Well, you know, three weeks later after they took that step of faith, Kelly got a job. They had a free place to stay within walking distance of her job. And all of their needs were met through support raising for this small church that he would be a part of, only the second person on staff at this church. I've never been more proud of the guy, so proud of him, as he stepped in faith. But what you can kind of think is like, but God, I'm just this like broken vessel. I'm, 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 I'm weak, I'm weak. Like this is, I don't have much to offer. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't have very much money to give towards this. And if I show up to serve, like what good will I be? Will I really move the dial? Well, what if the little boy who had the fish and loaves would have said that? What if he would have been like, well, it's only, it's only just a little bit of lunch. I mean, what good is this? At least I could eat if I kept it. But instead he's like, no, you have it. And Jesus will take your meager offering and multiply it to bless others and that others would believe and that it would result in the glory of God. What if the widow would have said like, well, I've only got these widow mites. That's all I have. And yet when she dropped those in, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, she gave more than all the others. Or what if it was just that mustard seed of faith and Jesus said, with that you can move a mountain because it's not up to you. It's not about your offering. It's that you would take that meager offering and share it in faith, and in that meager offering, Jesus will multiply it and create a miracle of faith in the life of others. You see, everybody at that wedding got some of that wine, 180 gallons. And we're not talking Franzia in a box. They still have Franzia? 
didn't go into the response. You guys are drinking top shelf. I see how it is. Uh, But when you move in faith, when you find a need and you fill it in faith, everyone will be blessed. People will believe in Jesus and he will be glorified. He will transform what you offer just like he transformed you. It doesn't stop. He transformed you when he saved you and every time you make an offering in faith, he will transform that to expand the kingdom. And so the question isn't if he's able, the question is, are you willing? Watch this in verse 11, here's the conclusion. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Everybody got blessed, but his disciples came to faith. All through a prayer of faith, obedience of faith, sharing of faith, blessing, belief, and glory for Jesus Christ. May we all live a life of faith and not a life of logic. May we find a need and fill it in faith, knowing that God's gonna do something that we can more than ask or expect or imagine as he multiplies that meager offering. You remember Judd jumping off that zip line. That's not the only thing he did that required faith. He also got on this huge banana boat. We pulled him behind a a boat and he was tubing, first time ever, which was nerve wracking as well to see your four-year-old out there all alone hitting these things. But at the end of the week, we're like walking up into the cabin and he goes, Dad, I wanna live here. (laughs) Like he was done with the old life. He's like, this life of faith where I just like jump on, jump out, hold on, this wild ride, I wanna live here. And may it be for us too, that we would stop living a life of logic and we'd be like, no, I wanna want live here. I can't see what you're doing. I don't know the connect the dots, like what this is actually going to shape out as you draw with my life, but I'm trusting you. I'm gonna live a life of faith. I'm done living a life of logic. And may the miracles unfold, people come to faith, and Jesus be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you for what you have recorded in John so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing in him, we would have life. And may we never stop this life of faith and trade it for a life of logic, but instead pray in faith, obey in faith, and then share you in faith. Lord, we love you. We sing to you now for all your glory. Amen.